Good afternoon and welcome to the Coinbase Institutional Market School. It's October 10th here in New York and we're excited to bring you the latest round of news from the crypto space this week. We welcome back Sid, who's been out for a couple of weeks. I think you are a little under the weather and also at a conference. Are you, are you, are you back on top form, Sid? Yeah, yeah, glad to be back. Yeah, we're looking forward to hearing about your insights uh, from the conferences that you were at. Um, today, we also have a special guest, Cosmo Jang, Portfolio Manager at Pentera Capital, where he's responsible for their liquid token strategies. Um, Cosmo has spent 12 years in TradFight across a number of really interesting roles, from M&A to PE to longshore equity strategies, and uh, is now in crypto. So, Cosmo, welcome to the show. Looking forward to hearing more from you later. Great. Thanks for having me, Ben. Yep, super, super excited to hear from you. And then the rest of the team, we have, as usual, David, Greg, George, uh, and as mentioned, Sid, covering what else has been going on. This week, we're going to be go going through positioning, important dates around the Grayscale appeal, which is coming up this week, ETH versus BTC, um, some of the macro dates, to, dates and times to look out for, flows, friend tech, ARB, and so much more. So a lot to cover. We'll get right into it. But before we do, one quick piece of housekeeping. If you are watching the call on YouTube, don't forget to scan the QR code to view David and the team's fantastic research. Uh, if you are listening on podcasts, that information will be in the show notes. And no matter what platform you're on, please don't forget to like and subscribe. That's how we go up the ratings and more people can learn about the content that the guys bring together. But without further ado, George, let's kick off with you with a bit of a market update of what's been happening in the last seven days. Uh, yeah, sure thing. Thanks, Ben. So overall, I'd say uh, markets were uh, mostly trading in a sideways fashion with relatively uh, contained volatility, although we started trading in a more risk-off mode with the um, conflict escalating, obviously, in the Middle East uh, over the weekend and, and yesterday as well. We saw altcoins underperform, in particular yesterday. Um, equities, if you look across the TradFi, being under pressure and U.S. government bonds in demand as a safe haven. And uh, as typical for risk-off situations within crypto, uh, we have seen a consolidation of BTC with uh, BTC dominance rising to uh, just a little bit above 51% as well. Now, outside of that, um, still struggling a little bit with a couple of key technical levels across the space. So again, looking at BTC, there were some attempts um, over the end of last week to rise above the 100-day moving average. It's just a little bit above $28,000, which so far have failed. But having said that... Um, I think there was a lot of talk recently about a, a local bottom in uh, U.S. equities um, after the correction and uh, with correlations rising between crypto and, and equities recently, uh, some talk about a potential squeeze higher in crypto, although uh, in light of the increased geopolitical risk, uh, I'd probably be more careful with that. Interesting. And I guess, George, ETH versus BTC, um has been a pretty interesting one. A lot of clients are commenting on that at the moment. It's ETH has generally underperformed. Staking rates, uh, returns rather, are also reducing. Like, why why is that, and how should we be thinking about that? Yeah, hundred percent. So, so ETH over the last week uh, has been down almost four and a half percent. BTC more or less flattish, very marginally up, like 03 percent up over, over the last seven days. I think um, sort of looking at the big picture is a couple of reasons. Um, the main one, I think, is, in my opinion, positioning. ETH was, uh, and probably still is, one of the biggest consensus themes this year, 
going all the way back to, to January and February. So I think positioning in ETH uh, vis-a-vis other crypto assets has been relatively heavy. Um, and Bitcoin with the ETF theme since the summer uh, was, in relative terms, uh, gaining some more popularity again versus ETH. Um, and I think that that has definitely um sort of created this this backdrop um, on the one hand. And then if you look at the, uh, so that's sort of the macro picture. And then the micro picture is um, last week, I think the week uh, ETH futures ETF launch. And if you go to the uh, next slide, um, so um, just just looking, um, you know, at the uh, 30-day 25 delta spread between BDC and ETH, um, and one particular thing that was interesting uh, and noticeable since the ETH uh, futures ETF launch, so essentially, what we're looking at here is um, basically, relatively speaking, if implied vols uh, are higher for puts um, versus calls for, for ETH and for BTC. And you can see that typically implied vols uh, are higher for puts and for calls, especially in the current environment, which is more uncertain. Um, so um, for individually, for both ETH and BTC, we are uh, in, in the positive territory um, with, with these lines there. Um, but if you look at the spread, you can actually see, especially over the last week, since that ETH futures ETF has launched, ETH put um, demand and implied vaults have been um, going up by, by quite a bit, uh, which to me suggests that uh, there has suddenly been a, a pretty drastic increase in uh, demand for downside protection in ETH uh, versus Bitcoin, um, just on the back of that, um, let's face it, relatively a lukewarm uh, ETF launch. Interesting. And we'd love to bring you in here, Greg. Uh, obviously, George has given us um, the perspective from a vol perspective, but what about futures? What are, we, what are we seeing there and also transactions on chain? Yeah. So, I mean, futures, I think we talked about it last week in ETH. Um, front month has been trading uh, below spot from time to time, which suggests there are shorts in the name. Um, I think, you know, ETH has, it's in a bit of a tough spot here because it's shaping up to be a rather attractive short. Um, the crypto native folks will look at it and say, you know, transactions are down. Uh, it's gone inflationary. Uh, and uh, that's why, you know, I want to either de-risk or possibly be short it. Um, and meanwhile, the more traditional asset managers will look at it and say, well, now we're in a, you know, a much higher rate <laughs> environment. We had 10 year at, at almost 5% uh, not long ago. Um, I want to be short, you know, Super long duration risk assets, ETH is one of those. Um, those same people likely don't want to be short Bitcoin just because of all of the uh, ETF catalysts. So I think that's why you're seeing um, Ethereum under pressure like it's been uh, the past couple of weeks. So, um, you know, until something changes either on uh, the risk front or uh, with the protocol itself, maybe transactions um, tick up we could see it continue to be under pressure. Great. Right, thanks, Greg. Um, Cosmo, we'd love to bring you in here. Um, if we kind of look at this from the perspective of kind of fundamental valuations and uh, cash flows coming from that as a result of things that are happening on chain, curious, how, how do you think about ETH as an, as an asset? Yeah, look, I think Ethereum is probably one of the most clear, uh, one of the most clear tokens that found product market fit in crypto. Uh, right, you think of it as a global computing platform on which most decentralized applications in crypto uh, and uh, and data transfer or, or uh, ledger updates are done, and so that's that's pretty powerful. They are 
you know, the way it accrues value uh, is that it's actually, I like to think of Ethereum as blockchain's toll keeper in the sense that anytime you want to interact with an application or anytime you want to uh, uh, transfer transfer funds, uh, you are using Ethereum and you are paying a transaction fee denominated in ETH. Uh, and so in that way, they're a gatekeeper and collect a fee every time someone uses blockchain. Uh, in about 90, 95% activity in crypto happens on Ethereum or EVM related ecosystems. Uh, relating that to, to value and where we see it today, I mean, Ethereum has pulled back meaningfully from the highs, uh, even though adoption continues to be trending upwards uh, relative to the trough. Uh, and uh, and so we're continuing to see pretty strong uh, fee growth. You know, the uh, Ethereum right now is annualizing about $2 billion of annualized revenue, of which flows through to token holders via buybacks. Uh, and, uh, you know, that's uh, you could argue that that's pretty expensive relative to current valuation. You know, it's about a, it mean, implies that Ethereum is trading at about 100 times its buyback. But for something that's growing extremely fast and has a lot of potential and on a mid, you could argue on a mid cycle basis, you know, Ethereum peaked at call it $22 billion of fees. Um, so on a mid cycle basis, take the average of peak. And today you're looking at about $10, $10 billion of fees and 20 times earnings all of a sudden becomes very, very interesting and very attractive. Uh, so, you know, I continue to be very bullish on ETH, although there are certainly uh, the pros and cons uh, uh, related to, you know, whether this will be, whether, how much this will continue to grow. And certainly some some worries about uh, activity not not growing that quickly at the current moment. So that's super interesting. I love the way that you just broke down the valuation um, from like where we are in the current cycle and peak cycle and, and kind of got to uh, a somewhat persuasive figure if you kind of take the uh, the average of that, which is always good. Um, I'm curious, how do you think about L2s and the potential for them to obviously improve transaction times, reduce fees, but then also maybe take some of those fees away from ETH L1? Yeah, for sure. Uh, well, look, I think taking a step back, I think it's important to realize that the main criticism of Ethereum to date has been that it is expensive and slow. I, I, let's just you know be honest with ourselves. Uh, and that's because of underlying limits on transaction throughput and its auction-based transaction fee mechanism that scales exponentially with usage. Um, that's really why L2s, uh, such as Arbitrum and Optimism and, and Coinbase's base have, have really come to play. You know, Their key value proposition is that for users, it's pretty simple. Uh, it's faster transaction times and lower transaction costs. And so if you can execute or reach finality four times faster than on Ethereum and do it for 20 times cheaper on Ethereum, you're going to do it. Uh, and that's why the L2s have seen such tremendous uh, growth in usage and adoption throughout the year as they've launched. Um, I think this is really important uh, on the Ethereum scaling roadmap, uh, and that's why they exist, uh, because Ethereum at, at its current state can't grow on its own without these L2s. Uh, and so any growth in Ethereum like almost necessarily has to be on via the migration of activity onto the L2s. Um, you know, as far as how you think about uh, you know, cannibalization uh, of activity on Ethereum, there certainly is some. Uh, I would say that the goal here is that if, if L2s enable, you know, call it 20, 30 times transaction throughput, that uh, that all that block space actually gets used. And if it does, it actually, the net net should be that fees on Ethereum go up over time. But in the near term, you are seeing that um, as more my, as more transactions migrate on the L2s, that Ethereum fees aren't uh, uh, are getting compressed a little bit because of that auction-based mechanism. Uh, but uh, you know, none of us are really valuing Ethereum on today's fees anyway. Like I said, it's 100 times today's fees, but 
Uh, but if you really look out forward and you think about the growth of the total pie, uh, you start it can start to get really interesting numbers as the L2 scale. Um, and uh, you know, their batched transactions obviously on a per transaction basis are worth a lot more to Ethereum than any single transaction. Yeah, Cosmo, I'm really sympathetic to your view. And, you know, we've certainly seen that in this kind of period of weaker activity, certainly the idea that we need all this block space has, you know, from all these alternative L1s relative to Ethereum, I think that idea has kind of gone down. Um, certainly, uh, I think we're transitioned away from that flat protocol thesis that we had back in 2021, where I think it was a very short bet to kind of look at the infrastructure of this stuff. Where is this stuff sitting in terms of applications? But we are now past that point, right? I think in a lot of ways, we've kind of built at least sufficient infrastructure so that if we actually have the users, we can accommodate them. Now, we're looking forward to what is the, the super app that's going to take us away from this chasm of like early adopters into general usage. And I'm not going to ask you that the common question, you know, everyone wants to know, like, hey, what do you think that app is going to be? I, I don't think any of us really kind of know. But like, how do you kind of navigate that space with that in mind? Because if we're in a new regime where we're trying to trade the apps, um, you know, what what are the things that you're looking at in order to kind of make that happen? Yeah, look, I, I, I'd say that, uh, uh, again, starting starting at a high level. I think it's really I come from a consumer Internet investing background and, and something I've learned over the last. Uh, you know, many years being an investor is that you never know where the big uh, hot consumer app will come from. Uh, it always sort of comes out of nowhere, like a stroke of lightning. No one expected Snapchat to take off. No one expected DoorDash to take off. Uh, and uh, but when it strikes and when it really starts to resonate with consumers, adoption can be pretty dramatic uh, and and very fast. Um, so all that is to say that, uh, you know, what a the job of a consumer investor is to really look for signs of initial product market fit or inklings that this this application may have caught on uh, and then track the fundamentals very closely, whether it's kind of on-chain activity uh, uh, or basic things that come from TradFi, like going to Google Trends or Sensor Tower, their app balance data, really tracking that closely to make sure that you are starting to see that exponential curve grow. Um, so that, that's sort of how I think about it at a high level. I think more specifically today, where are we seeing exciting activity um, look, I, I think right now the most uh, the applications that found product market fit in crypto are primarily a few areas, right? One is um, one is just block space. Uh, we talked about that, where uh, the L1s, you know, to transact on a blockchain, you are effectively paying for paying for block space, and so the L1s and L2s, like Ethereum and Arbitrum and Optimism, have generated very meaningful fees, um, and that is users actually paying to use something. So. I would argue that is actually a consumer application. Uh, the second is is probably trading. Uh, you know, the it, I think this is a very core uh, trading or or you know more cynically gambling is a very core human attribute that's been around or a core human instinct that's been around for millennia. Uh, and so the fact that people like to trade and the fact that people like to transact is is natural and actually a very large and growing TAM uh, and something that's not going away. And it just so happens that the most frequently used blockchain apps today are indeed trading related, whether it's on centralized exchanges like Coinbase yourselves or decentralized exchanges. Um, and so, you know, you're still seeing these trading venues generate very meaningful revenue, uh, whether it's on centralized exchange or decentralized exchange. Uh, and then third area that's really found uh, product market fit is probably stable coins. Um, you know, just the 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 need for micropayments and the demand for storing and transferring value primarily denominated in USD has 
been very critical to the financial plumbing across crypto and just emerging markets in particular with less stable governments and currencies. And uh, a lot of stablecoin issuers are effectively banks. So something like a maker is effectively a bank that issues a stablecoin and earns a yield on that stablecoin. Uh, and uh, and those have turned to be, you know, banks are good businesses in rising rate environments, and those have turned out to be pretty good businesses and generating a lot of revenue this year. Uh, so those are sort of areas I, I see a lot of product market fit today. I think looking forward, I, I'd love to see more, uh, or I, I anticipate seeing more probably in two main areas. One is uh, certainly gaming and, and DeFi and, or gaming and NFTs. Uh, you know, it, to me, it makes, as a former gamer, it just makes so much sense that uh, online game economies should live on chain uh, and that uh, global or gaming communities are global businesses. And so it, it makes a lot of sense to migrate that activity uh, on chain in a digital native way. And then the second area is really a deep in or decentralized <laughs> structure networks, which I found to be uh, really interesting. Uh, you know, I, I think it's really interesting. It's really important to point out that uh, everyone asks, like, you know, what is the purpose of crypto and why does it exist? Um, uh, I think Deepin is a perfect encapsulation of what's like uniquely enabled by blockchain. Uh, I think uh, the superpower of crypto is that tokens are a powerful incentive mechanism to bootstrap adoption. Uh, so what that means is like tokens, uh, tokens elegantly address the dilemma of the cold start problem that a lot of networks have, right? Like if you have demand supply network, it's really hard to build up both sides of the network first. Uh, but once you get it going, it's a really powerful network business that has a positive flywheel. And tokens sort of jumpstart that by giving incentives to early adopters uh, to participate in the network. And so you're seeing a lot of really interesting uh, deep in projects really start to take off. And I think we could see meaningful adoption next year. Yeah, wow. A lot, a lot, a lot to unpack there. Um, definitely want to dive into the, the deep inside of things um, and also gaming and NFTs. I want to just go back a little bit though and kind of talk about L2s again and I'm curious for your perspective like what do they need to do to improve that user experience and, and I kind of give you this as an example I'm in crypto I've been for a little while and I was at an event recently with some other people in crypto and we just wanted to send some dollars to one another and you kind of had that moment of like bridging to one network and then making sure you had enough ETH so you could bridge and then you could fund it and all that sort of stuff. So for, for me, I think user experience still needs to improve a little bit. But I'm curious your thoughts and, and what else maybe we should be thinking about from that perspective. Yeah, look, uh, I, I sympathize with that view. And I, even me having been in uh, crypto for a long time, the UI still uh, still needs a lot of work. Um, and, you know, one of the main one of the things that has gone, uh, one of the major upgrades to Ethereum that's sort of uh, an unsung win that people haven't focused on is, is account abstraction, which was enabled earlier this year. But effectively, what that does is, uh, you know, it, you don't, you no longer have to create a wallet to interact with the blockchain, and then you no longer have to have pre-fund with gas to interact with, uh, interact with block, well, Ethereum specifically, and uh, and that's really powerful, right? Like right now, the uh, today in order to, or prior to account abstraction, uh, in order for my mom or whoever to use, to buy an NFT on Ethereum, it's a whole ordeal. You have to set up a MetaMask wallet, you have to save a private key, you have to uh, then uh, onboard onto Coinbase or another on-ramp and then move that into your MetaMask wallet and then uh, enable permissions and then buy the token or buy the NFT that you want. That's just a lot of steps. Uh, and uh, what account abstraction does is it enables service providers to provide a much more seamless Web2-like experience for users who want to onboard and don't need to know the 
complexities of how the blockchain of how blockchain transactions work. And so I think anything we can do to continue to abstract away uh, the fact that you are, I don't, in the future, I see a world where people don't realize they're interacting with the blockchain networks, just like people don't realize they're interacting with the complicated wiring that goes behind the internet. Uh, it, it's really just, they see applications, they use it, those transactions happen to live on the blockchain and, uh, you know, they go about their daily lives. And I think the more and more we see infrastructure providers or wallet providers enable that, the, the better. And that's certainly step one, abstracting away the user complexity. I really like that. Um, and I completely agree. I think that when we get to that world where you don't even know that you're using blockchain, like that's really the big unlock. Um, you know, when we're talking about L2s, though, another big issue that arises is because so much activity is sitting on individual L2s, we create a lot of fragmented liquidity. And I was wondering how you think about that. And kind of a related topic, it's a little bit different to this, is it kind of goes back to the whole modular versus monolithic thesis. You know, like we're seeing right now that on L2s, there's the building out of kind of developments like Eclipse, which is kind of taking the best of all worlds, right? They're saying like, hey, let's rely on like Solana for its virtual machine, Ethereum for settlement, Celestia for data availability. Um, I mean, how does that also play into that user experience you're talking about? Because if we're we're really kind of just optimizing everywhere now, like um, how will that kind of change things in your your worldview? Yeah, look, I think there will be multiple states of the world, or there will be multiple blockchains in the future that we use, and different blockchains will be better suited for different applications. So I do see, uh, in particular, I see a state of the world where there needs to be an EVM, or there will be an EVM ecosystem that is pretty modular in its nature, whether it's separating execution from data availability, uh, from consensus. Uh, but there will also be a universe uh, or, or a set of transactions and applications that live on monolithic blockchains that are uh, that are not modular, that are single blockchain and sort of everything encapsulated one that are extremely high throughput. Um, the benefits of, of the EVM ecosystem are frankly just that they have built up this massive network of users and, and capital. And so that is a pretty strong network effect that I think is hard to displace. Uh, I think if we were to start over, you, you might argue whether the uh, whether that's uh, the best place to start. Uh, but you know, this is sort of where we are uh, in the evolution of blockchain, and uh, that's where the liquidity lives. There are also better decentralization guarantees by uh, built uh, that Ethereum has versus monolithic blockchains uh, such as Solana, and so there is a need for for both in the future. I'd say. Um, as far as like how I see the EVM ecosystem shaking out, uh, I do think this is these are network businesses, and I would expect uh, I would expect uh, market share to aggregate and concentrate in a few players. Um, you know, that's Ethereum, but under them there will probably only be a handful of L2s, maybe three, uh, that really scale quickly enough and and survive into the future. Um, and then below that, there might be a lot of L3s or app chain specific L3 uh, app chain app chains that get built on these L2s, but uh, to your point, we can't have liquidity fragment infinitely. Um, that just doesn't make sense. Even if cross-chain messaging gets extremely good uh, and easy, it still is uh, less convenient than just everything living on the same chain. And so I would expect there to be pretty meaningful network effects within just a few L2s, the EVM system, and then perhaps another um, monolithic blockchain system. Amazing. I love, I love that. I love that breakdown. Just want to move and uh, to another topic now and talk about gaming and NFTs. Now, 
I think a lot of people talk about gaming having not been gamers necessarily. Um, it sounds like you were a gamer, so we'd love to hear a bit about that first. But how do you think about gaming NFTs and what are some of the green shoots you're looking for there in terms of early signs of traction? Yeah, look, I, I, I think at a high level, what the reason why gaming is so attractive as an end market is that uh, for blockchain uh, technology to really be adopted, we need to onboard the next billions of users. And the fastest growing uh, segment with the highest engagement from users is gaming. Um, they're already digitally native. They're spending hours a day. The average user spends hours a day. Uh, and, uh, you know, increasingly, gaming is effectively the new form of social media for a lot for a lot of people, and especially in the younger cohorts. Um, so, so that's why this is so important to get right and, and such an interesting growth area. I would say that, uh, next, I would say that it's, it's, uh, it has been disappointing so far, the level of traction that we've gotten in, in Web3 gaming. I think the idea of a frictionless payment rails and frictionless economy makes it, and a frictionless decentralized economy where you own your own assets is very compelling. Um, the problem is that there just haven't been any games yet that have been released that are very fun to play. And that's, that's only what it comes down to, you, uh, for a game economy to work effectively, you need, you need the game economy to make money. And so what that means is you need more inputs or more capital coming in the capital coming out, which means people have to be playing the game to play the game and generate utility, uh, and, and be willing to pay to play as opposed to be just playing to earn and taking money out of the system. Um, you know, I'm, I'm going back to that trope about consumer investing. You never know when games are going to break out or consumer apps going to break out. I'm pretty confident that there are a ton of teams with a lot of capital uh, developing games or developing quote unquote AAA or maybe AA games that will uh, that will be released next year. Um, and so I'm hopeful that one of them will hit, but it's really hard to know beforehand which of those games uh, will hit. So when I talk to a lot of um, game developers, at least on the Web3 side, you know, one of the challenges, of course, is trying to find that balance between network effects and financialization. Um, I don't think there's any consensus on this other than Axie Infinity wasn't a good model to follow. Uh, you know, people have thought that it was good at, in order to kind of open up the space. But other than that, everyone's trying to come up with something new. Have you seen any economic model that you think is sustainable in this space? Uh well, so I think it really comes back to, uh, I think all the tools are there. So I don't know that there needs to be a new economic model that's created, right? If you, again, if you just go back to existing games, let's say as an example, so World of Warcraft, uh, at peak, it was about a, a 800 million GDP uh, business, right? It was an economy that generated about 800 million transactions across its network uh, on an annual basis. That's pretty interesting. Um, uh, what does that mean? What that and that's excluding the uh, the dollars that were spent on World of Warcraft subscriptions, uh, which you know, ten million users times call it one hundred twenty dollars a year is another billion dollars of revenue. Um, uh, and so uh, there actually is there actually are massive in-game economies that exist today. They just haven't been unleashed in a Web three way, uh, or they just haven't been built on the blockchain, and so they haven't been really unleashed. Um, you know, if anything, the WoW economy was held back because. Uh, Blizzard and Act Activision Blizzard and, and other game developers like them didn't like the fact that there was money leakage in their game and that there were, in fact, a huge economy of what farmers, I mean, they called them farmers back then, just like farmers in, in Web3 games, but like farmers effectively mining whatever kind of resource they want to use in the game, whether that's uh, uh, whether that's gold or, or ore or, or pelts. Um, 
And uh, there already existed a massive economy of people that played the game to make money. And then they sold their goods to people who played the game to have fun. Uh, and that was a massive economy. And so it, it all comes back to the tools, I guess, basically going back to the fact that the tools already exist. Um, it's really just creating a game that's actually fun so that we can have the inputs be greater than the outputs. That's great. And back to my, uh, I guess my, my first question, what was the game that you were playing when you were, uh, when you were gaming a lot? Yeah, I was a, I was a big Starcraft player and then, uh, and then, uh, Dota or defense of the ancients. And, and I played a little bit of wow during, during, uh, COVID. Very, very cool. Very cool. So I guess if you're playing those games, I'm assuming you have some in-game items, which may or may not have value today. And is that kind of where you see NFTs coming in? Yeah, that's exactly right. I think the, uh, the, the, I think the real benefit of NFTs is twofold. One is that they are a digital representation of your good. And so you can actually verify that you own those assets on chain. Um, and two is that they're immutable. Um, I think there's some debate on whether NFTs need to be immutable. And I'm okay with dynamic NFTs versus immutable NFTs. But, uh, you know, the, the fact that you own an item, you know what it's going to do into perpetuities is pretty powerful and incentivizes you as a gamer to spend more on that item. Uh, you know, if I if I knew that uh, my item belonged to me, I'd be willing to pay more for it. Uh, that's just that that's just how it goes. And and uh, uh, I do think that you know, in-game items, whether it's uh, in-game resources, maybe are more like tokens or currency, and then in-game items like uh, weapons or armor are, are more like NFTs that are immutable. I think that's a very interesting way to to digitize uh, digitize and put block put gaming assets on chain. Uh, that makes a ton of sense. Now, moving on to Deepin, um, I have to say, I, I kind of agree with you. It's an area that I'm, I'm pretty excited by. Um, seeing the Hive Mapper stats recently, they've mapped 8% of the world's roads in eight months. And like that, there's questions around quality of data and what it's used for and demand and stuff like that. But like to your point about an incentive within a network, for me, that's that's huge. So it's so curious, where where are you most excited within the within Deepin space? Yeah, Uh Look, I have to emphasize again, it's really all about the superpower of crypto is, is that tokens are powerful incentive mechanisms. Um, and so exactly stuff like HiveMapper is extremely interesting where drivers install cameras on their cars to map the world around them, effectively building a, a, a competitor Google Maps. And they're in token incentives for applying that mapping data to networks. You know, hopefully, uh, in theory, in the future, as they build out a more dense network or uh, better mapping data, they can sell that mapping data to enterprises who want to buy, uh, who, who need a mapping data. Um, I think another area that's particularly topical right now, uh, and we're, I think we're about to see a lot of adoption, is, is decentralized compute. Uh, you know, an interesting way to use token incentives is to uh, tie those token incentives to real-world work. Um, and the most success successful examples of that so far are using what is effectively excess capacity that otherwise would be hard to coordinate. So in the Hive Mapper case, you're already driving your car. Why not have a camera on your car, also map data as you're driving? Um, something, another area that that uh, people have found or uh, you know, entrepreneurs have found is ex there exists excess capacity is actually in GPUs. Uh, right now, as I'm sure everyone knows, there is a massive GPU shortage uh, and a supply demand imbalance with uh, in, in the GPU market because of the huge rise in, in usage for AI. Um, GPUs are, are particularly good for AI training and inference, and therefore uh, their usage and demand for GPUs has gone up massively this year. I mean, you see this in NVIDIA's earnings beating and raising 20, 30% both in the last couple quarters. Uh, 
And so it's very clear that there is a need for increased GPU capacity. There are really interesting uh, GPU networks being spun up, decentralized GPU networks being spun up today, such as Render and Akash, uh, which are effectively uh, which are effectively providing a marketplace where GPU providers, whether that's uh, whether that's small hobbyists or uh, or guys with just gaming computers that, that have really strong GPUs, or hobbyists with small small data centers, or even you know, uh, sneakily, some of the larger data center providers supplying their excess GPU capacity onto these networks. And on the demand side, uh, you know, it, whether it's uh, academics or or uh, or uh, scientists or even end uh, end use computer uh, consumer AI inference models, they are accessing these decentralized GPU uh, marketplaces like Render and Akash to actually do their AI training and inference. Uh, so this is all really exciting uh, because I think. This is a perfect example of how token incentives are uniquely used to tap into excess capacity that lives in a very decentralized network. It's these these GPUs are coming from across the world, uh, and they're coordinating them to actually be used uh, to do real world work. Uh, and uh, it happens to be very timely, just because we do have such an acute supply demand imbalance in AI compute right now. Amazing. That's um, yeah, certainly a, a ton of very, very exciting projects there. And, and I feel like these things take a long time to, to build up. Um, I'm curious, Solana is, is kind of involved in that space and it's been around a little bit longer. It's often seen as a bit of a hedge against ETH and L2s in terms of the way that they um, they operate. I, I'm curious kind of how you connect the dots there between DP and Solana and how you think about that in reference to Ethereum as well. Yeah. Yeah. Uh I think what we've seen is that Solana has been kind of a, a sneaky winner in all of this. A lot of the deep end projects, uh, whether that's Helium or, or Render, uh, have moved on to Solana uh, recently because they realized that they need a uh, they need a blockchain network that can support high throughput. Um, and uh, Solana happens to be one of the best options out there. It also helps that you know they share a lot of the same investor base, and so everyone is really incentivized to both grow the Solana network as well as the these specific deep end projects. Um, you know, the uh, I think this really goes back to like why do monolithic blockchains need to exist? And the reality is that something like a Solana or other monolithic blockchains really do enable quicker throughput or faster throughput today. Um, and, and and these these projects you know want to grow today, and so they're finding a lot of success migrating over. Um, so next, I want to move on again. To, we've spoken about one of the areas that's got product market fit is trading. We've spoken about the value of decentralized networks. We kind of want to put those two together now and just talk about some of the decentralized trading platforms, perhaps specifically. Um, it's not an area that we're particularly close to, so I'm curious for your thoughts and how how they're growing, what their volumes like relative to centralized, and I guess what you see for the future of, of those types of platforms and products. Yeah. Um, so, so decentralized perps or decentralized perpetual futures contracts uh, have become have been some of the fastest growing and most money making applications in crypto uh, in DeFi today. Uh, why is that? Derivatives and in particular perpetual futures contracts have become the main way that crypto is traded. Uh, you know, derivatives trading volume is about three x that of spot volumes on centralized exchanges, and so that is clearly where people choose to trade. It, why the, the answer is pretty straightforward, which is that you know futures are a much more capital efficient product to trade uh, than spot, and so uh, it's no uh, it's no wonder that derivatives trading volume has really taken off, and I would expect that to continue in the you know in, in the traditional financial markets. Derivatives markets are 10x or 10x or more the size of spot markets. Um, 
the uh, at least in in notional trading value. So uh, the reason why decentralized perps exchanges are interesting is, or the why these exchanges need to exist in DeFi is there are a couple of reasons. One is that um, you know big appeal of DeFi is that you get to the the whole concept of uh, you know your keys, your coin, the the fact that you actually have continue to have custody of your funds on chain. This is particularly relevant after last year's famous industry blowups um, that where a lot of users realized they actually didn't own their money. They were just a ledger and a balance sheet uh, and that they did not have claim to their or their unsecured creditors effectively to these exchanges. Um, that's uh, these are, you know, the, the, the shadier exchanges, not Coinbase's of the world. But the fact is, a lot of exchanges are like that. And so uh, the, the ability to have custody of your assets on chain, which a lot of people take for granted in tripartite custodial agreements and TradFi is not so obvious in, in crypto. So that's one. The second is just that DeFi, you know, the promise of DeFi is permissionlessness. What does that mean? It's a more convenient way for a global audience to access these assets. Uh, you know, you uh, it's much easier to get get uh, get spun up and start trading on something like a DYDX or GMX or Uniswap than it is to open a new exchange account. And so that's very interesting and, and easy for a lot of people to move funds in and out. Um, you know, where we've seen a lot of success then is in uh, uh, is in the growth of uh, perps exchanges and then DeFi perps exchanges as a result. The, the first perps exchange, I would say, um, is in DeFi was DYDX, which has a very dominant, you know, 60% market share today. And then other there are other large contenders like GMX and, and Synthetics who continue to exhibit pretty meaningful growth as well. Amazing. Cosmo, thank you so, so much for, for all of that. I have like another 25 questions. I could literally continue to ask and ask and ask and ask. But um, we, uh, alas, we, we, better, we better move on. I know you're busy, but we will keep you um, involved throughout the call. If, if there's anything you want to add throughout the call, then please just jump in. But, uh, okay. but thank, you, thank you for that. That was super insightful. Um, and as I said, I'm sure I'll have follow-ups for you offline as well. Um, George, back, back to you for uh, the rest of the market news, please. Uh, yeah, sure. Thanks. Uh, definitely been a couple of interesting headlines over the last week. Um, obviously, uh, a, a lot of uh, interest in the ongoing um, FTX trial from the crypto community. Um, one of the um, most interesting headlines I saw, among other things, was uh, uh, Gary Wang saying that uh, the insurance fund was uh, number was essentially uh, made up, uh, which is interesting. And then um, Caroline Allison speaking next. So. Um, We'll probably hear a couple of uh, other interesting insights there. Um, On to more positive things. Uh, CoinShares reported the largest uh, weekly inflows uh, since July into crypto ETP products. So it was uh, about $78 million last week, um, actually mostly into uh, Bitcoin-related products. And um, you were talking about um, real-world asset-related uh, uh, projects earlier, Ben. Um, so crypto company Backed uh, has issued a tokenized security product on uh, Base, which is uh, very exciting to see. And it tracks essentially a short-term uh, U.S. Uh, Treasury bond uh, ETF and uh, is collateralized by the uh, underlying um, bills. A couple of other things uh, to watch out for, um, which I'm sure David will touch on as well. We have the US CPI coming up on Thursday this week, um, the Grayscale appeal deadline on October 13th. And um, there's a Binance SEC hearing uh, scheduled for Thursday, October uh, 12th as well. Uh, so uh, definitely watch out for any headlines there. Thanks, George. Yeah, re- reading those headlines around FTX and that number, how it was created, was just like head in hand stuff. It was uh, un- unreal. 
Um, but anyway, as you said, moving on, great sequence you're seeing decent inflows there. Um, and then on real world assets, I know I think Sid is going to touch on it later. There was a um, something happened on, on one of the platforms there, which you want to cover as well. But thank you very much for that, George. Um, David, uh, macro. What what are you uh, what are you focusing on at the moment? Yeah, so I think the interesting thing about macro is that macro is definitely having more of an impact on what's going on in the crypto world, and that's kind of been a regime shift that uh, hasn't previously been there over the last few months. Now that said, the correlation between something like Bitcoin returns and uh, S and P or and Nasdaq returns is still fairly low to the point where they, we can consider them uncorrelated, uh, but it has been rising over the last few weeks. So directionally, we think that their chances of them moving more in tandem is actually increasing. Um, but what we have seen driving the picture has been high yields in the long end of bond curves. And that's not just the U.S. Treasury curve, but that's pr pr pretty much across all like global sovereign bond curves. Uh, but something has changed. Uh, we have, for example, come full circle on rate hikes. So I think that a week ago, the consensus that were the higher rates were just unstoppable here, at least through the quarter. Um, and it was just decoupling from traditional indicators like the copper to gold ratio. Now there are two things that are kind of changing that. Number one, uh, there was the conflict in Israel that, you know, people have been kind of retrenching back into safe havens. Uh, so bond markets are kind of seeing that the yields coming down because of that. Um, and also because, uh, you know, just global, like financial conditions, at least national financial conditions in the U.S. have tightened so much over the course of last month, in part because yields have been rising so much. The Fed has kind of stepped back from the commentary that they previously had um, just on Friday when non-farm payrolls kind of beat so much to the upside you know, I actually thought I was like, wow, it seems inevitable now that the Fed's going to need to kind of step in here and hike rates in November. Quite the opposite. In fact, the odds of a Fed hike are now down to around 12 percent uh, because the commentary coming out of uh, a lot of board members has been that actually because financial conditions have tightened so much, um, they don't actually think they need to do anything. So it's going to be interesting come November, because I think uh, previously I had a lot of conviction that. You know, because the Fed was going to stay put, you know, very likely we would see things kind of rally. But just now so many things are going on, like, you know, because of this, uh, you know, war in, in Israel, for example, um, you know, maybe global growth might be more suppressed. Uh, generally, equity and risk assets really like growth. So if that's going to come sooner, like I, I thought that wouldn't happen until there was this kind of natural easing into the first quarter of 2024. Now, these kinds of geopolitical stress points have kind of moved that somewhat forward. Um, but for the time being, it seems that what is dominating the performance of these assets is just this huge imbalance of market supply and demand. So that tends to be the name of the game. Um, probably the next big thing to kind of materialize, at least from the macro standpoint, is what's going to happen with US CPI, as, as George kind of pointed out. If that kind of surprises again to the downside and, you know, markets are expecting that core CPI is going to, uh, you know, come down to around 4.1%. If that trend stays put, then maybe we will get this kind of environment where the Fed isn't going to do anything in November. And maybe, like, I think things could still materialize to a rally for crypto into year end. But certainly my conviction on that, which was very strong, uh, you know, just even a week or two ago, has moderated somewhat. But I still believe that rally is going to be in place. 
Great. Thanks, David. And I guess like some of the crypto specific data points that might affect that rally um, is around Grayscale and, and ETF. So we'd love to to bring Greg in here as well. Like David, you first. How are you thinking about um, that kind of Grayscale uh, timeline and another ETF timeline as well? So the interesting thing was, I think we uh, saw there was a headline from a black or a former BlackRock executive who was saying that the most likely scenario now is that uh, we won't just get one uh, Bitcoin spot ETF, but very likely we'll get a grouping of Bitcoin spot ETFs. And I think already markets were kind of moving in that direction. I think uh, for the most part, a lot of pundits were arguing that that was going to be the most likely scenario. The timeline, I think, has in fact been moved up because of the uh, deferments that uh, the SEC did. So, you know, I, we saw right before the questions about the U.S. shutdown were going to appear that, uh, you know, a lot of these decisions were postponed until early January. So around that, those dates between like January 3rd to January 10th is where like, uh, you know, we think the SEC would would have the final deadline to actually confirm or you know approve or deny these applications. But because that would kind of run into the beginning of the year, I think a lot of people believe that that would happen probably within uh, Q4. So I think that's something that uh, is more important now to kind of establish whether that's going to be the case or not. Got it. And Greg, from from your perspective, how are you thinking about it? And and how are clients uh, talking about it typically? Yeah, I think David's uh, right on the timing. We have, you know, Friday the 13th coming up. Uh, October 13th is the day uh, we're going to find out whether or not the SEC um, appeals the Grayscale case. That's going to be, you know, big news and will inform the timing. But uh, assuming there's no appeal, um, yeah, I mean, it's any time between, you know, uh, just after then and uh, early January and likely to come in uh, late Q4. So, um, you know, lots to look forward to later this week. And, and are you, Greg, are you seeing people positioning or is that positioning being done? Like are people lightening the load a little bit? Like how are people thinking about it and specifically to the GBC and ETH products as well? Yeah, so in both of those products, the discounts have remained about in line um, with where they've been, you know, when we've talked about it on past shows. So that's, you know, call it 18% in GBTC, 30% in ETH-E. Um, as far as positioning in spot markets, I would say, you know, absolutely people are either positioned for it or they don't want to miss it, which means they don't have a full position on, but they're there. Um, and the reason, you know, we think that is Bitcoin has really had this persistent bid um, really since late August. Um, and it's had this bid in the face of, you know, weaker risk assets, weaker, um, you know, overall crypto markets. Um, so for sure, I would say, you know, traders are there and, um, you know, betting on a positive outcome Friday and, and later this year. Awesome. Thank you. Uh, thanks so much, guys. Um, David, appreciate your, your update on the macro there. That was fantastic. Greg, going to stick with you here. In terms of flows, what, what else have you been seeing on the, on the desk? Yeah, so volumes have, you know, settled in and remained pretty stable. You know, I have to say, you know, listening to Cosmo earlier in the show, you got me all bulled up, um, which is a great feeling after some of the de-risking we've seen in the past week, especially in the longer tail assets. Um, again, you know, Bitcoin's held up really well um, because of that ETF 
uh, bid and catalyst. But also, more recently, it's had a bit of a flight to quality um, move where we've seen people rotate out of you know, even ETH and into Bitcoin, um, but also the, some of the longer tail assets. So it'll be something to keep a close eye on to see if that continues. Now, one other thing from a technical standpoint, and we talked about this last week as well. I think we have a chart on this if we want to bring it up, is, um, you know, Bitcoin has been rejected at this $28,000 level several times. Uh, George mentioned it earlier in the show today. That is where the 100-day and 200-day moving averages um, kind of converge. And it's something that we're watching very closely because I think if we do get positive news uh, on Friday and we trade up but aren't able to you know, retake that level, I think that should give um, a lot of us some pause as we move into the uh, you know, later – well, not the later half. Oh, my God. It's uh, – uh, the, into Q4 and uh, the end of 2023. Well, so it feels like we have a lot riding uh, on uh, on Friday. So um, it, tough question, but is there a particular time that we'll expect to hear that, that these things will come out or is it like close of business, is no news is good news type thing? Um, you know, I don't know the answer to that. Um, in the past... You know, we've heard, we've sometimes heard that morning, uh, we've sometimes heard the day before, um, but I don't know if there's a firm deadline. I would imagine there is, um, you know, because it's the the U.S. court system. But um, yeah, that's a that's a good question that I don't know the answer to. Cool. Let's uh, we'll, we'll look into that one and uh, and, and come back. Um, cool. Thank you very much, Greg. Uh, appreciate that as always. And Sid, welcome back. Hey. You, you've, there's been a, been a lot going on. I know you've been been very active in Frentech. So looking forward to an update there. Um, but maybe let's kick off with with Arbitrum. I think there was some some news out there that's worth talking about. Yeah, definitely. Um, I know we touched on L2s a little bit earlier in the call. Uh, obviously, Arbitrum probably one of the biggest L2s out there in terms of TVL and and the sheer number of protocols deployed on there. Had a pretty big update this week where um, there was a governance proposal out to allocate uh, ARB token incentives to protocols on on the layer two. Um, You know, there was a bit of, if folks remember, there's a bit of scandal earlier in this year when uh, the Arbitrum DAO kind of uh, arbitrarily had a proposal to uh, allocate a certain pro- proportion of the token to for incentives without governance voting, and folks were kind of in uproar about that, so they they rescinded that. But now this is up for governance; it's on the governance forums. In fact, it's 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 so so geared towards governance that there are like ninety seven different um, projects looking to get uh, ARB incentives and a flurry of activity on the governance forums about this. There's a snapshot vote live; um, it's running until you know Thursday, October twelfth. Uh, this week and uh, yeah, loads of projects, you know, getting positive voting that we're seeing uh, from the initial, you know, results so far. Um, overall, there's they're allocating around, uh, you know, 50 million ARB uh, tokens for incentives um, and, you know, projects are kind of just angling to get a portion of that for their individual use cases and, and voters who are ARB token holders are, are the ones kind of deciding the fate of this. So, Net, it should be a positive for the ecosystem uh, because historically other L2s and L1s who have had these kind of programs have generally spurred activity and users bridging over to the chain and using these apps to, you know, 
get a portion of these incentives. So we'll see how Arbitrum reacts. Yeah, it's definitely a competitive space out there. Um, Cosmo, we'd love to bring you back. Um, obviously, we spoke about L2s. Um, we've spoken about, uh, I guess, in, in general, more broadly, kind of how competitive the space is and how you've really got to compete to get users to, to transfer across to your, your L2 or your L1 or whatever it might be. I'm curious, with, with this one specifically, how are you thinking uh, about uh, the situation? Yeah, uh, I, I'd say I'm very bullish on L2s in general, but in particular Arbitrum on the back of this news. Uh, I mean, for those who have been following the ecosystem for a while, it, it's been known that uh, you know Arbitrum does have a lot of capital in its treasury and it has been wanting to deploy that to incentivize people, but it's gone through the hard work of getting uh, of coordinating people and decentralized in a DAO to uh, to actually make a decision and, and get this program in place. Uh, in the meantime, this whole year they've been competing against a lot of other L2s that have been pretty aggressive about using uh, using incentives. And so I, I do see this as like and despite the despite Arbitrum not really having incentive program uh, since launch, uh, its activity is by far the most uh, most active on an organic basis. Uh, and so that's that's very exciting. And now they get to just step on the gas uh, by adding these incentives and you know the the applications that are going to. So Arbitrum itself, I think it will be very interesting because you are going to start to see a real inflection in growth and them start to gain market share again, where some critics or or or, or the bears on Arbitrum have said that they've been share losers. When the reality is, I think that's misinterpreting the data and certainly will be wrong going forward. Uh, and then uh, from a Within the ecosystem, there are a lot of interesting ways to play this beyond just Arbitrum. Uh, clearly, the largest uh, the largest applications on Arbitrum are going to receive pretty large grants. So whether that's someone like a GMX, which is a decentralized purpose exchange, uh, similar to what we talked about before, or Grail, which is another decentralized spot exchange, uh, they are getting very large grants. Uh, and uh, you know, I would expect to see, and they are fee earning, they return fees to their token holders, and I, I do see them uh, outperforming over the next. Uh, over the next stretch as these as these grants get rolled out. Interesting. So Cosmo, are you saying that the grants get rewarded to GMX and they then in turn reward it to their users? Uh, it, it's a little bit less direct than that. The, so GMX is going to get this Arbitrum grant and um, what is likely to happen is they are going to use that in a, in a few different incentive programs. One is to bootstrap more liquidity, so incentivize liquidity providers to come to, our, to GMX and uh, increase, uh, increase liquidity, which increases trading depth and enables greater volumes. The second is they will uh, they will to a smaller, slightly smaller extent incentivize trading activity right uh, by lowering effective trading costs to be more competitive with uh, centralized exchanges uh, and th in that way drive more users onto the exchange. Very very cool very cool. Um, so one to, to to watch there and, and Sid, what is the the actual date that that this is going to be distributed? Uh, unclear yet. I mean, first this governance has to go through, um, but within the next few weeks, uh, the the snapshot proposal ends on Thursday, and then after that, there's a few more stages. Got it. Okay, fantastic. Um, back to uh, back to or moving on to Frentech. Um, what is the latest here? I know you're you're still very active. What, what's going on there? Yeah, yeah. I mean, speaking of protocols and DApps, right? I mean, that's the holy grail where you know where crypto 
uh, you know, is looking for dApps that can drive user activity and, and retention. Um, a lot of these incentives are for that. And uh, FriendTech was one of these apps that kind of sparked folks' imagination. It was uh, launched on base uh, this and spawned a new category of, of social fi, right? Um, and so last week, you know, it breached, the TVL breached uh, $50 million. It's sitting at around $43 million now. Um, but uh, what it really inspired was a bunch of different clones and copies uh, of FriendTech across different chains there's there was one on arbitrum uh earlier this last week we also saw one on avalanche called stars arena uh unfortunately stars arena uh, you know suffered an exploit of three million dollars and they eventually managed to plug the hole but you know still confidence was a bit shaken and uh, generally speaking i mean the the the, the topic of security was has been a conversation topic amongst friend tech you know for the past few weeks especially as folks have been piling more and more eth into it um you know, it's using kind of a relatively new DAP architecture with with this privy and then um, progressive web apps, which is kind of living on on the phone, um, bypassing the app stores, and uh, and folks are wondering how secure is it, especially when they're logging in using their Twitter credentials and you know phone number and things like that. And some folks had been swim sim swapped and attacked on Frentech. So recently, this past week, Frentech announced uh, you know the ability to add like a two FA password and, and like add and remove login methods as well so some improvements to the security um and, and you know in contrast to some of these other clones where you know exploits are happening so it's a positive for the original frontech ecosystem for sure but uh again we will remains to be seen how lindy and how resilient this the core code base is as time goes on and have they improved any of the kind of early concerns around tokenomics and uh, how many people can can hold a key given the the kind of the curve the bonding curve yeah so the bonding curve remains the same it's actually hard to change that one um but uh they did uh you know his every week basically for context for for listeners um the friend tech has been airdropping these these points on users uh the points have no material value at this point but uh you know um, potentially they do uh down the line and that's been hinted at by the friend tech team and uh Historically, users were getting points just based on the amount of uh, uh, the value of their portfolios, and so users figured out that they could just buy themselves quite a lot, quite a lot uh, to have this total value locked metric, and then kind of game the point system. And uh, the Frentech team seems to have uh, cut down on that, so people who are self buyers don't actually get the same equivalent number of points as people who spread out their buys across uh, other people, other keys. Um, so we're seeing more distribution of keys on the network and, uh, you know, just trying to incentivize more organic behavior. So we'll see, we'll see how that plays out. Fantastic. Very, very cool. As, uh, as Cosmo said earlier on, some of these things with green shoots are the ones to keep an eye on. So thank you for, for doing that, Sid. Um, and then, uh, what else have you been looking at? I know RWAs was an area that, that I think there was something you, uh, you saw there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was at a, at a conference last week in, in London called the CC Data Conference uh, for Crypto Compare, the data company. Uh, a lot of the conversation was around RWAs uh, and uh, specifically on Maker, where the, the total RWA portfolio is over $3.1 billion now. Um, and, uh, you know, with DAI supply steadily increasing, you know, and obviously U.S. interest rates, um, that's still a pretty dominant source of revenue and one of the leading revenue generating protocols in all of crypto. Um, and, and, you know, on the flip side, also this past week saw some slightly negative news in terms of, uh, uh, you know, 
this space in general, there's a protocol called Goldfinch, um, where uh, you know it, it specializes in like real world lending pools. They have you know several different baskets where folks can deploy capital, which is then deployed to real world companies. So that like baskets like, uh, you know, a carbon reduction pool, an African innovation pool, and so on and so forth. And uh, this past week, they had like a $20 million loan that they had lent out to several real world companies kind of go bad, uh, just because, you know, the, the, the companies didn't do so, so great. Uh, and so the, the, pro, the company behind Goldfinch called Warbler Labs, they, they've stated that they will actually backstop this, but also highlight some risks in terms of, you know, on-chain credit and this association with real world assets, you know, the, how resilient these loans are is, is a subject of, you know, concern. We'll see how that, you know, plays out. And do we have any sense of how much they're getting back on the dollar? Is it, is it zero on the dollar or 50 cents on the dollar for this uh, 20 million loan that went bad? Uh, no, they, they charge pretty high interest rates. Um, so basically, I mean, they, each of these pools, they, like capital is kind of allocated into these pools. Uh, and then from these pools, it's allocated to several different companies uh, by different borrowers. Uh, so in this case, there's a borrower called Stratos uh, Asset Management. Um, and so the pool itself as a whole has, you know, API, APR uh, ranging from like 7 to 10%, depending on the pool. Um, and then so there's like the... the base kind of interest rate and then on top of that depending on the risk taken by the pool perfect and for this 20 million dollars that loan has defaulted entirely partially uh and uh you know and then uh, some of it is getting clawed back etc and then warbler labs itself is backstopping as well so got it okay so we'll get the full amount but unclear what the delta is between what um naturally comes back versus what warbler labs has to has to cover yeah Interesting, interesting. Um, great, fantastic. And in terms of um, uh, fantastic, okay, Cosmo just put something in the chat. So let, let's bring you in here. So these claims are trading on chain, Cosmo? Yeah, it's actually kind of interesting. I mean, part of what's really cool about Goldfinch and these other real world asset, uh, or I mean, they're effectively credit underwriters, right? Loan originators, is that they actually tokenize their, their loans and they put them on chain. So um, you are starting to, I mean, you can trade these claims uh, or you can trade these loans on chain and you are start, you're starting to see some activity there. I think uh, there was another Goldfinch loan that uh, that uh, that defaulted a little while back and those are trading at about 70 cents on the dollar. Um, you know, people are hoping that recoveries are closer to 90. And uh, I, I haven't looked at this one specific, or this most recent uh, default specifically, but I think, you know, it's about a $7 million loan as part of the 20 million CLO ish product is, is what's uh, what defaulted. And so uh, we should, you, you can definitely go on chain and start to play these claims. If you have a differentiated view on how the recoveries will work out. Very cool. I, uh, I, I love um, how that's suddenly available. I was just doing a bit of a bit of Googling. So one of them was a decentralized lending protocol in Kenya. Um, yeah. I, don't, I don't have a personal, uh, much of an edge there. So I may leave that one alone, but um, it's interesting at least to, to have the ability to do so. Um, Cool. Awesome. Well, I think that's that's it for this week. Uh, Cosmo, thank you so much for joining. That was a lot of fun uh, and really insightful. Uh, thank you, Sid, George, Greg, and David. Fantastic, as always. Um, and thank you all for listening. We will see you next week. Take care. All statements and analysis correspond to the date of this recording. This recording is only intended for sophisticated investors. This recording should not be copied, distributed, published, or reproduced in whole or in part. 
Neither Coinbase nor any of its affiliates make any representation or warranty as to the accuracy or completeness of the statements or any of the information contained in this recording. The views expressed in this recording are not necessarily those of Coinbase. Coinbase is not providing any financial, legal, accounting or tax advice or recommendations. The receipt of this recording by any listener is not to be taken as a giving of investment advice by Coinbase to that listener.